Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. My name's Scott Schifferling. My wife and I have been attending here about 10 years. Uh, 10 years. Probably some of you look at us and think that's, that's, that uh, you remember when we first came and, and it was just a breath ago. And you're right. It was just a breath ago. Uh, but 10 years. And uh, we're glad to be here. We live in Campton Hills nearby. We are in Acts chapter 10. Versus our passage this morning is 30 through, 34 through 43, but we're smack dab in Acts 10, and we're in the middle of a narrative that really started with Oliver last week in his explanation of what happened in, in the vision that Peter had and the dream that Cornelius had. And so that is the backdrop of a divine appointment that we are going to see in our passage today. And then the cool part of the passage happens in the first verse of the next section that Travel will talk to you about next week. And so they need, these passages all go together, these sermons all go together, and there'll be a fair amount of overlap, but we'll try to keep that to a minimum. So Acts chapter 10, our verses this morning start with verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in this country, the country of the Jews, and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is God's word, let's pray. Our Father, this is your story, the story of your spirit, the story of your son, the story of your gospel, the story of the birth and expansion of your church. And we are thankful for that story. We would pray, Father, that you would teach us, that you would teach us about your gospel, its inclusive nature, that you would teach us about what the gospel means in the life of the church, that you would teach us what it means to look like a gospel church, that you would lead us and you would align us with your spirit. We need your spirit to teach us just as you visited Cornelius and his household. We need your spirit even now to take your words and to convict our hearts and to give us faith, a renewed faith in you and a renewed hope. And we thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Your word is truly a light to our path and a, and a light to our path and that we will, um, we need you for guidance, encouragement, and conviction. We thank you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. 
So my wife and I are national park nerds. We, uh, we love the national parks. We love everything about the national parks, all the swag. You know, we've got two uh, national park passports, and if you don't know what that is, then you have no clue with what I'm saying. Um, but when I go to Barnes & Noble, one of the first places I go is to, the, is to the stash of national park swag, right? You know, pencil bags, vintage postcards, planners, snow globes, you know, everything national parks. I, th I think it's cool. We love the national parks. Love the swag that goes along with it. Uh, I've I really enjoyed seeing the national parks. I haven't seen them all, but uh, from Acadia to the Everglades to Big Bend to Glacier uh, to Yosemite, uh, I love them all. I love them all and look forward to seeing them all. Haven't really seen all of the ones in Utah. Haven't seen the ones in the Northwest, but we love the national parks. And so you can imagine what it, what it was like for us when Ken Burns came out with his documentary on the national parks. It was cool. It was 2009. So it's a wonderful series. Very, very cool. And in that, in that documentary, there's a lot of, a lot of things shared, but there was something foundational at the very beginning that was definitional for me. And it was, it was helpful. And it was a quote by Wallace Stegner, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of the West and an environmentalist. And he said, the national parks are the best idea we ever had. Absolutely American, absolutely democratic. They reflect us at our best rather than our worst. And what I loved about that is this idea in the 1800s of we have got to preserve our nation's natural wonders and treasures, preserve them, and yet make them accessible. Make them accessible to anyone by not letting the rich gobble them up, right? But also protecting them for future generations. And if you watch the history of the National Park Service, you read their white papers and you read their philosophical stances, they struggle, they've struggled over history between those two things. Accessibility, making the park accessible so that everyone can see the, 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 the beauties and the wonders, but also preserving it so that we can hand it over to generation after generation after generation. So there needs to be rules and there needs to be work done. And so there's always a balance between making it accessible and preserving it, the beauty of it for posterity. And we're gonna see those themes this morning as we talk about the gospel and as we see the gospel expanding. Now, as a church, we've been going through the book of Acts for a while. And when you think of the book of Acts, you have to think it primarily takes place between about 34 AD to 64 AD, about 30 years, about 30 years in the history of the church. And I like Michael Green's commentary or pseudo-commentary on this book where he, his title is 30 Years That Changed the World, 30 Years That Changed the World. The book of Acts is really the history and the birth of the church up until 66 AD through the eyes of an eyewitness, Luke. And so you've got to think about the wonder. In fact, Michael Green in the introduction makes this point. He says, in 34 AD, you have 11 untrained men and a group of women in Jerusalem. And by 65, 66 AD, you've got Christianity has so permeated the Roman world 
that Nero can burn Rome and blame it on the Christians, and it's credible. The Christians had so permeated the Roman Empire in this 30 years. And he makes a point, and you could make the point, that, the, that the, the title of the book of Acts is not necessarily the Acts of the Apostles, but it's Acts of the Spirit in taking the church from its kernel form sitting in Jerusalem and expanding it throughout all of the known world. And you begin to see the initial growth very quickly, right? The gospel comes to Palestinian Jews who are in Jerusalem. Then it expands to the Hellenistic Jews that are coming from the dispersion, people coming back to Jerusalem for uh, festivals and for seeing family or, or whatever. And so you see the Hellenistic Jews beginning to take hold. Then you begin to see Philip in chapter 8 goes to the Samaritans. Now the Samaritans were kind of like Jews. I mean, from the Romans and us Gentiles, we look at them and say, well, they they look kind of like Jews, but to the Jews, they were hated, right? They were the half-Jews. They were the half-breeds. And so Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans. Then, a little bit later, Philip takes the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. So the gospel's expanding. Palestinian Jews, Hellenistic Jews, Samaritans. Then we've got the Ethiopian eunuch, and then right after that, the spirit takes, takes Philip to Joppa and Caesarea, which are basically on the coast, the Roman sec- section of the empire. So you see the growth in the kingdom. Now the Jews were exclusive, they were exclusive culture. They were culturally exclusive. And some of that was because of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law they had had significant cultural markers that would keep the people of, the people of God distinctly visible and separate from the outside world. So there were laws that regulated their worship, laws that regulated their eating, laws that regulated strictly intermarriage, and laws that regulated their entire lives. But the Jews became even more exclusive because of the pain of judgment and history. Think about, think about what had happened to the Jews. They were not to intermarry. They were not to be tolerant of idolatry. And what do they do? And the, what's the whole story of the Old Testament? whole story of the Old Testament is they fail, they fail, they fail. God judges them. And remember what happens to the 10 tribes? They get taken in 722 BC and they are never to be seen again. They are completely assimilated into the Assyrians. And then 100 years later or so, 605 to 586, the Babylonians come and they completely wipe out Jerusalem and they take the Jews to Babylon. And the Jews that were left, that were faithful, very, very dedicated themselves to, become, to making sure that they weren't assimilated, that their children were not assimilated into the Babylonian culture. They were strict in putting hedges around themselves. Think of Daniel. Think of the story of Daniel, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's the whole point of that story? Is that Daniel brought into the Babylonian king, what does he do? He separates himself. He makes it that visible separation because they very distinctly wanted to say to God, we get it, we understand your judgment, we won't let it happen again. And so in Second Temple Judaism, you see the, the, the faithful 
have now come back and generations later have got this, have put hedges up. Not only do they have the law and these cultural barriers, they've put up more barriers to ensure that the people stay, uh, keep from being assimilated into the Roman culture. And they've developed all of these religious and purity laws that hedge them away from that assimilation. They were culturally exclusive. They were raised to think all of God's covenant blessings are for us and our children. Messiah is coming to rescue us and our children. And in fact, Messiah very well could be the one who slays all of these Romans and slays all of these Greeks and the Babylonians and all of those who persecute Abraham's children. The Jews had a very insular culture. They believed that all of God's blessings were for them. But clearly God had another plan. God had a plan, and we see it in this passage, with two divine visitations, very pulling a Jew and a Gentile together into a gospel conversation. Now, it's, one thing I want to make sure is that the prophets always saw that, God's, that the Messiah's kingdom was going to be worldwide and international. I just want to point out Daniel chapter 7 and a couple of statements that Daniel makes. The very man who was against assimilation would say this, after a vision, he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there, come, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Very clearly, international scope. At the end of that chapter, verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So the prophets would say there's always been this stream of thought that Messiah would be a worldwide leader and that the blessings of the rule of Messiah and his kingdom would go to the whole world so that was there, but basically the, the cultural divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles were very, very strong. But in this passage, what we see is we see, first of all, the, the good news is that God brings peace to all peoples only through Jesus. We're going to see the inclusive gospel, and we're going to see the exclusive gospel the inclusive gospel and the exclusive gospel. Notice very first of all, notice Peter's realization and conclusion. Peter comes to a realization and a conclusion based on the work of the Spirit and based upon the dream that he has. And he starts out this passage, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what's right and acceptable is, is acceptable to him. So he starts out preaching, and remember who the audience here is. The audience here is Cornelius. Cornelius' household 
Many close friends and relatives and six Christian brothers from Joppa. Most of them are uncircumcised Gentiles. And they meet together in Cornelius' house. And Cornelius sets the backdrop at the very end of 33 when he says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So they're here to hear the message of the Lord. But don't miss the fact that this is Cornelius, a Roman centurion who lives in Caesarea. Caesarea was a Roman city built by Herod. It's a coastal city. It's a port city. It's the center of Roman administration. Remember, the Romans are occupiers. The Romans are enslavers. At this period of history, 50% or more of the Roman Empire are slaves. It's a culture of enslavement. It's a culture of subjugation. They are the enforcers. They're the muscle. Think of Russell Crowe, Maximus. Think, think this is what the, the, the Roman legions were. And although we don't have legions, we have these cohorts there. These guys are the Roman muscle. Everything about the Roman soldier, everything about the Roman military was about intimidation. It was about intimidation. They were intimidating people. They were saying, get in line, be quiet, do what you're supposed to do, don't fight back. Think of the crucifixion. Think of the type of death the crucifixion is. You know, we know of regimes that rule through terror, right? Stalin's regime, people just disappeared. Many regimes, people just disappear. Not so for the Romans. When the Romans did an execution, the Romans made it a spectacle. The Romans would take a man and they would strip him and they would beat him to a pulp. They would abuse him in every possible way and then they would nail him on a tree and let him slowly and in an agonizing way die in front of everybody. Now what's the point of a crucifixion? The point of a crucifixion is to let everybody know this is who we are, this is what we do, don't cross us. They're intimidators. And Cornelius was a part of a group of intimidators. That's what they were known for. And thinking about it, you know, the Roman, the, the, the Jews, when they thought the gospel was coming, they thought, they thought Messiah was coming. They thought Messiah was going to be one that was going to break the bonds of the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and was going to destroy their enemies. It's like, you know, when we were kids, we might play cops and robbers or we may be cowboys and Indians. You can see the little Jewish boys playing slay the gladiator, slay the Roman soldier. There was hatred there. There was animosity. There wasn't a year that in the history of Israel where somebody didn't try to cause an insurrection. A zealot who said, these pagans have no place on our land. They're an occupying force. They were the hated ones. And my friends, the hated ones are exactly who God brings the gospel to. Exactly who you wouldn't expect. You don't expect it to a Roman. You don't expect it in a Roman centurion. You don't expect it 
in Caesarea. But that's what God does in his his extravagant grace that he gives us in surprising ways. We would have never thought Saul, breathing threats against God and God's people, on his way with death certificates, that he would be converted. But Paul says, I was the least of people, but God chose me to display his grace and mercy. And what we're seeing in this passage is exactly the same thing. You would not expect Cornelius. You would not expect his household. You would not expect his servants. You would not expect some of his soldiers to be recipients of the gospel grace. You would not think that they're the first Gentiles in a huge international kingdom of Christianity over time that these are the first Gentiles that the gospel comes to, but God does that. Notice the gospel that comes to Cornelius. It's a inclusive gospel. If you look at Peter's words from the very get-go, he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Notice he said, he is Lord of all. Later he's going to say, God has appointed him judge of all of the living and the dead. And that everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. And in fact, Peter, as he reflects on this, as he's called on the carpet, he's going to say it in the next chapter. He's going to say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The angel told Cornelius, go to Peter and get the message you need to be saved. They go to Peter, Peter gives them the message, and they are saved. They are granted repentance unto life. The gospel comes to the most unlikely folks. It comes to people that the Jew, at this point the Jewish culture would say they're the enemy. Think Jonah, right? We want those guys dead. They need to die not be saved, not be in our church, not to be in fellowship with us and to take Lord's table with us. They're the enemy, they're the hated, they're the despicable, they're the dirty, they're the unclean. And Peter says, I'm convinced that the gospel's for everyone. Remember, remember Jesus in the gospels when the Pharisees look out and they see Jesus and they see him eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, obviously he's not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he'd know who he's eating with. And he wouldn't be doing that. And Jesus, confronted with that, says, listen, you don't get it. You see, you got enough righteousness of your own. You're so filled with your own righteousness. I have come to those who are sick and need a physician. I am come to those who are very clear on their lack of righteousness. So the gospel comes. It comes without reference to the Judaistic cultural requirements. It comes to the Samaritans. It comes to the Gentiles. And nobody says a word about what you're eating for dinner or that you're not, your men aren't circumcised. It's going to come up in church history, but Peter doesn't bring it up. Peter just gives the gospel. 
Now he assumes they know a lot because, they've, because they're knowledgeable. And so in his presentation of the gospel, he, he's going to say, he's going to presuppose a lot of preparation. But I just want to make sure that we are clear there that the gospel is for all people. God has opened it up and God has said the gospel is for all people. And that is for those who are close, for those who are far off, for those who are likable, for those who are dislikable, for the clean and the dirty. And it, that can be any way you define it. It can be religiously clean or it can be culturally clean or dirty. Your friends, the gospel is for your friends, the gospel's for your enemies, the gospel's for celebrities, the gospel's for the homeless and the untouchables. It's for the rich and the poor. The gospel is for everyone. And we shouldn't exclude anyone from the gospel. The gospel is God's gift to all kinds of peoples and we don't have the right to exclude. If you don't, if you don't get that, then you, don't, you, then you miss the whole point of Jonah, right? Jonah didn't want to take the gospel to the, to the Ninevites because he knows God is rich in grace and mercy and they'd be saved. And he says, I don't want you to save them. I want you to bury them. But that's not the spirit of the gospel and of the people of God. The gospel is for everyone. It's for those, it sometimes seems that those who seem to be the farthest away are actually the closest to the kingdom. And that's an amazing, surprising work of a glorious God. And it tells us def in definition form what grace and mercy really mean. But notice what else is happening here. Not only is God opening wide the gospel, God is integrating the church. God is integrating the church. God is saying the old rules and divisions and partitions are gone. The old partitions are gone. If we had time, we would read that passage in Ephesians 2 where Paul says very clearly, you were, you were called uncircumcision by the circumcision. Now Jesus himself is, is the peace between the two. There is no more division between the two. You were afar off. You were a stranger to the promises. You've been brought near and you're close. You were, you were unclean and now you've been made clean by the work of Jesus. The gospel is the great unifier, and it's the constitution, it's the entrance requirement, it's the constitution, and it's the ruling message of the church. We are a fellowship of the gospel, a fellowship of Christ. That means our churches are welcome. There's a big welcome sign. A big vacancy sign that's blinking that no man takes off, and it's open for everyone. The church is a fellowship of the gospel. All are welcome in our church and in our fellowship. As you think about Peter's vision about the eating, as you think for the Jew, this was very, very difficult. Culturally and socially, this is a big change. It's unsettling. It's disorienting. In fact, think about it the first time that, that, that Jewish Joe and Gentile Beth sat down together in the fellowship. Think about the Jewish parents 
and think of the revulsion and think of them hearing their mother and their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather and how they would, they, they would just be aghast at that. Those distinctions are coming down and the church is really struggling, is really struggling with what does that mean? And they're gonna struggle for about 10 years, maybe even longer. They're gonna struggle. This is gonna come up, it's gonna come up in the next chapter. It's gonna come up in, in Acts 15 at the first council of the church, and it's even gonna continue after that. This animosity with the Jews and with the Judaizing Christians is going to continue because this was such a big deal. But I want us to be grounded in what does the church look like? So turn with me, if you would, to just to Revelation chapter seven. And I just wanna read a couple of things for us to align on of what the church looks like. Romans, or, uh, Revelation seven, Verse nine, John tells us of one of his visions and he says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Turn over a page, chapter five, verse nine. Another scene. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people of God. Now notice the people of God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. You see what the gospel does? The gospel takes people from every tongue, from every nation, from every race, from every kind of people, from every walk of life, and brings them together in the church in this innumerable body that reflects the work of the Spirit in growing his church. Each generation has to grapple with what does this mean? And does my church look like this? Is my church open to this? Is my church focused like this? Because this is the word of God and this is the spirit and this is how the spirit grew the church from the very beginning and this is who we are. And in fact, if the spirit wouldn't have done it, we most likely wouldn't even be here, right? Because most of us, I don't know all of you, but most of us probably are Gentile. And we came to faith listening to a Gentile. This is where it starts. And this is where the spirit takes the church from this body and begins to explode and begins to explode the gospel. So the gospel's for everyone. The church is for everyone. The second point, and it's a much shorter point, the good news of peace is wrapped around an exclusive savior it's an exclusive savior. It's salvation and forgiveness are by his name and his name only. Only it is, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. One man appointed, and that man is Jesus. That's the whole point of this passage. Think of Cornelius, and I said all kinds of bad stuff about Cornelius, but what's true about Cornelius is, is also true is, is that he was a seeker. He was close. 
Think of what the Bible says about him. The Bible calls him devout. The Bible calls him a generous man giving to the poor. The Bible calls him a God-fearer. The, God, the, the Bible calls him one who's close and a friend to the Jews. The Bible says things about him that, boy, wouldn't you love? You'd love to have somebody else say this about you, not to mention it, the Bible says that about you. Luke says that about you. This was a man who was close to the kingdom. He was a man that God noticed the closeness to the kingdom. Then why, why the vision? Why the angel visiting? Why pull Peter from Jerusalem to Caesarea? Why? Well, my friends, it's because Cornelius needed a savior. Cornelius was a religious man. He was a seeker. There were many things about him that you would say are, are commendable, but he still needed a savior. He needed the gospel. The gospel had to come to him. The angel said, you need to get Peter. You need to invite Peter to your house so you can hear the gospel so you and your household can be saved. You see, it wasn't enough. The good works that he had done were not enough. Remember the scene with Jesus after Jesus went across the, the lake and he walked across the water and he's on the other side and the crowds catch up with him. And the crowds are saying, you know, and Jesus says to them, you know, you're following me, but you're following me because I feed you bread. You're not following me for the gospel. You're not following me for good news. You're not following me for salvation. And they said, well, tell us what we need to do to do good works for God. Tell us what, tell it is what we need to do. What's your plan? What's your program? What's your seven steps? And what's Jesus say? Jesus says, you want to please God. You want to do the works that please God. You believe in the one who's, that he sent. You believe in Christ Jesus. That's the works that God deems acceptable. And that's what the passage says, right? That's what the passage shows us. God does not show partiality. He judges all men in their sin, and he offers the gospel freely to all men. Notice the supremacy of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus. It, the God, this is probably a summary of the sermon, but the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on his baptism, his healings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his commission and message, uh, his commission to the messengers. But it points out all the way through here that God did this. God put his finger on the man Jesus. God's spirit dwelt on him. He did these healings. He did these works. He was raised from the dead because God was with him. And then at the very end, it says, God has appointed him once and for all the final judge of all mankind. The message is pretty close to all of the messages that Peter's preached up to this point. He's preached three messages up to this point, and this gospel is very similar. Now, he doesn't go into a lot of apologetics like he, normally Paul will do later on. He doesn't have to because these guys are close and they assume a great foundation, but the gospel is exclusively in Jesus Christ, or the passage doesn't make sense. So the gospel is very inclusive, and it's to all men, to all peoples, everywhere, in all time, 
But then secondly, it's exclusively in the name of Jesus. So you don't want to put a coexist sticker on the back. There's no universalistic message here. This is exclusive. The gospel is exclusively in Christ. So a couple things for us to remember is I grew up in the church my whole life in the church. Everything I remember is in the church. I've heard the gospel. I remember hearing the gospel when I was seven or eight. From the very beginning of my life, I've heard the gospel. But I had to come to personal faith in Jesus Christ myself. The gospel is for everyone individually. And there are many who grow up in the, in the church and they hear the gospel over and over and over and they go on autopilot, right? I just assume it. I'm a Christian. I'm here. I'm a Christian. It's autopilot. The gospel doesn't mean any, that much to me. My sin doesn't mean that much to me. And the gospel doesn't revolutionize. And the gospel is there and it's outside and it's away. But I just passively go on. I'm telling you, the gospel's for you. The gospel's for me. And we must personally engage with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We must personally make him our Savior and accept his lordship over our lives. And we don't want to confuse being in a Christian family, the great thing that that is. Don't confuse that with being a Christian. Don't confuse being a political conservative or a political liberal. Don't, don't, Don't confuse that with being a Christian. Don't confuse your stance on social issues. Don't confuse that with being a Christian. Those are all good things, but don't confuse them with the heart of the matter. The entrance requirement and the constitution of the church are the gospel. You have got to engage with it to be a a Christian. Think of it. Just because you put up the Christian hedges and you put up all the Christian markers and you live your life within those Christian markers, does that make you a Christian? If so, then Cornelius is a Christian without the gospel because he was there. Yet the gospel comes to Cornelius because Cornelius needs a savior. You need a savior. I need a savior. And I'm talking to our young, our young people. You can't just sit in church and absorb it and think that somehow, someday, God, you'll get it right after you've sown your oats and you've figured out life and you'll wait till you're in your 30s. Well, some people don't get till they're in their 30s. The day of salvation is now. The gospel is for now. It's not for tomorrow. It's now. Don't put it off. The gospel is for us, and the gospel is now. The second thing is, don't miss the certainty of resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, Peter says, Jesus has been appointed the judge of the living and the dead. Think about it, think about it, right? Psalm 110, my Lord, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The day is coming when everyone will stand in front of the judge. Think of of that passage that Jeremy read a few minutes ago on the the passage on, on God, on Jesus's humiliation. And what's it say? God has given him a name that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every tongue, 
all people, everyone here, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, everyone stands before Christ. Everyone, the gospel's for everyone because judgment's for everyone. And we have to keep that in our mind and with judgment day, honesty, assess where we're at in our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And if it's his righteousness that we rest on, and if it's his work that we rest on. And then lastly, we must preserve the simple message of the gospel and not allow it to be hijacked by lesser goods. Whether you are, are, social justice is a big deal to you or you're anti or whether you're for it, either position, don't let that become your gospel and don't let your gospel come in with, hey, everybody comes to Christ, but boy, the, in the small print, you've gotta be my, you've gotta take my position. Don't do it, don't do it on, on social issues. Don't do it on any issue. The Bible, the Bible makes the gospel clear that, that it's for everyone, it's for all. The gospel comes unfettered by cultural distinctions. It comes unfettered with your perspective on identity, your sexual identity, all of those things that just, that just blow our minds when we start thinking about what some of the conversations going on in our society. And wherever you land on that, it's not the gospel. The gospel's for everybody. And the gospel message is first. And then all of the other discussions our second, because the gospel meets us where we're at. And I love the openness and the welcomeness of the church because we've got to ask that question. Every generation's got to ask that question. Does my church align with the Revelation 7 church? Does my church align with the Revelation 9 church? Is there an openness? Is there a movement towards that? Is that the expansive view of the gospel that they have? You see, the message that God gave to Peter and that Peter gave to the centurion and that Jesus interrupts the ser- or God interrupts the sermon and drops his spirit on him, that message is that the good news is God bringing peace to all peoples, but only through the Jesus Christ. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to you that you give us word, a word of hope, a word of peace, a word that rescues us where we're at. And Father, we're thankful that your gospel is powerful enough to save people from the uttermost and that no one alive, no one breathing is, um, is incapable or um, is, is hardened in such a way from your gospel that your gospel cannot break through. And so we pray, Father, for our loved ones. We pray that your gospel would continue to grow and we long to continually be surprised by your miraculous and extravagant grace in the life of others. And we're just so thankful that you've done this work in us, that you're doing it in our church, that you're doing it in our community, and we would just pray that you would help us align with the work of your spirit as your, as your spirit builds the church and glorifies the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.